Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. Chapter 20 The Bridge Bay Area Paper sits across I-80 from AT&T Park and up Mission Street from the newspaper. It's a building made of old gray stone, and the paper presses inside are even older. They first opened up in the early 1900s, when it had been the newest technology. But that wasn't so anymore. San Francisco is a city that is always on the edge. It pushes until something gives, sometimes leading to a breakthrough, and other times leading only to a break. I walked up Mission Street, and a man passed by in a suit half as expensive as my home. At the curb, he stood on his phone and looked at the watch on his wrist. The sidewalks were still wet from an early morning rain, and a woman down the way in an electric wheelchair struggled to make it up the slight grade in the concrete. The suited man looked behind him as he heard her spinning plastic tires, but when the first cab came, he was off on his day. At a bus stop shelter, the metal bench contained inside was split and had a bar in the middle that was not made to be a pillow. But a young woman laid there and rested her head on it. What she had left of her life sat next to her in two bags. As she woke and stood up, a strong smell of urine came from her. The sun was warmer than most days in San Francisco, and the wind was calm. The weather seemed to be waiting for an event to begin. A cab brought me up to the northern part of the city, to Fisherman's Wharf. The wharf got its name in the 1800s when Italian immigrant fishermen came to the bay during the gold rush. In the 70s and 80s it became the home for tourists that it is now, with its chain restaurants and novelty shops and street vendors. The locals of the city called hokey, or nostalgic, or sentimental, but tourists bring out the good in a city, and the people, and the landscape. It's visitors that make the visited feel needed, and to be of use is a wonderful thing. A man and a woman and their two children walked towards me. All four were dressed in newly purchased I Love San Francisco shirts, with the love represented by a heart, and the city abbreviated as SF. He looked to be Asian, while she was white, and the kids had his traits. His face questioned me before he did. Sir, he said, which way to the cable car station? I looked up at the intersection sign above my head. We're on Beach Street, I said. To the east is a streetcar station on Jones. But you don't want that. I don't? He questioned. No, I responded. If you're here, you need to ride the real cable cars. Where do I find them? He asked. Hyde Street and Beach, I said. Keep walking west, and you can't miss it. Along in Bartocito Street, just past Pier 41, at the Ferry Arch, and by Pier 43, a couple walked alongside of me. Excuse me, she said. Would you happen to know a good fish restaurant? One with a view of the water, he said behind his wife. I thought of where I had been, where I had always wanted to take Lori. Fog Harbor, I said. It's on Pier 39. Which way, he asked. East, I said, pointing. After dinner, take her to see the sea lions at the end of the pier. My first trip to San Francisco was in my first year of driving. I didn't stop talking about it when I got home. The lights and the buildings and the hills. In Gardenstown, you weren't encouraged to move about. And if you did, you eventually came home. San Francisco was different. People came and stayed from all over the world. I came home one weekend from San Francisco to a surprise. It's dumplings, she said. Just like that place you talk about. 
They were almost as good as the ones I had found in the city at a little Chinese place below the financial district. After the meal, she had sat me down in the living room. One more thing, she said. I got you a movie. What's all this for, I asked. Your birthday, she said. It's about an hour, a 20-minute walk from the Fisherman's Wharf to the Golden Gate Bridge, but it took me almost two hours that day. People were drawn to me, as if something beckoned me to stop. Down in Bardecito Street and over to Jefferson, past Hyde Street Pier, where the street traffic stops and the footpath begins, is Maritime National Park. It's a small cove that sits before a small sandy beach, and it's a nice place when the sun warms it and the wind is down. But that's not the typical day in San Francisco. But this day, the sun was bright, and the sky was clear, and the heavens must have been open. Past the amphitheater seats. Almost to the museum, down from Gia Gardelli Square, an old Chinese man stood and took my arm in his hand. Where are you headed? he asked. He had a warmness in his tone and calmness in his eyes. The bridge, I said. He turned and faced the water and pulled his straw hat back on his head and the sun touched his skin. It's a beautiful day for it, he said. The sun doesn't come out like this every day. Past the aquatic park pier, and up the small grade to Black's Point, I followed the path through the woods and moved on past the grassy park and the Burton statue. Marina Boulevard led me by Gas House Cove and the nice houses and cars, and by the Yacht Harbor, where boats big and small are docked. The road turns into Old Mason Street, up past the Chrissy Field Marsh, where the dry ground is simply known as Chrissy Field. There a young mother and her son sat on a blanket in the grass on the ground. He couldn't have been more than four years old, and she must have been about Lori's age. She handed him a paper plate with one small piece of cake and a plastic fork stuck in it. He took it in his left hand, but when he did, he let go of the birthday balloon in his right hand. It shined in the afternoon sun, and the once calm air gave a gust of wind and carried up and away into the sky. I ran to catch it, but it was out of reach. I tried, I said to the woman, who thanked me with her eyes. Lori and I had sat down for the movie, but she didn't get what she expected. The bridge was a documentary film that spanned 365 days of filming the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. At the time of the movie, the Golden Gate was the number one destination for suicides in the world, and as the film began to unveil itself, Lori began to grow uncomfortable. I didn't know that this was what it was about, she said. The film crew captured a number of suicides, and they interviewed the family and friends of the bridge's victims. Lori knew my past and my history with self-harm, and she knew my lows. We can turn it off, she said. I don't know if it's good for you to watch it. No, I responded. I like it. She got up from the couch and began cleaning up that night's dinner as I continued to watch. One of the bridge's victims was a tall and dark man with long hair. His friends recalled him as a man that began to be focused on death. I learned before that a certain amount of focus on what comes next is good, but too much of a good thing can become futile, and too much concentration on death can suck the life out of even the great men. Towards the end of the movie, that tall and dark, long-haired man walks along the pedestrian pathway along the bridge and climbs atop the rail. Turning around, he places his arms out to his side and falls blindly down to the water. Lori's phone rang in the kitchen, and she walked to the bedroom to answer it. Coming back into the living room, she said, Johnny, if you're going to be watching this movie, I'm going to go out. Okay, I said. I'll be back after a while. Walking out the door, she turned back to me and said, 
Happy birthday, Johnny. Lori never stepped foot in our home again. I remember Lori in kindergarten with her hair and pigtails with plaid bows in each. Our first dance together had been in the seventh grade when my feet were even more clumsy than my heart as I began to slowly fall for her. Or our conversation in the Gardenstown High School parking lot when Lori left over the lunch period on a Tuesday afternoon. At Cuddy's Pharmacy, she walked quietly to the back of the store. Can I help you, Lori? Asked Joe Cuddy. She ducked into the aisle that contained the items that kept you from having a baby, or told you that one was on the way. And she pulled a small, rectangular box off the shelf and placed it into her purse. Just looking, she responded, walking up to Joe Cuddy at the soda bar. He had just finished cleaning up the bar with a towel still in his hand. But he hadn't wiped the question mark from his face. Can I make you one for the road? He asked, throwing the towel over his shoulder. He took four oranges from the cooler at his waist and cut and seeded them and juiced them. He added soda water and syrup and ice to it, pouring it into a styrofoam cup and capped it with a lid and slid it down to Lori. It's on the house, he said. Thanks, Joe, Lori responded. I needed this today. You look like it, he said. Take care of yourself, Lori. The northwestern corner of San Francisco Presidio Park is where to go to walk and bike and hike. It was Battery East Trail that led me there past Lincoln Boulevard and looping around Strauss Plaza and up the 101 freeway where the statue of the man that built the Golden Gate stands. Passing bicycles with helmets and backpacks with pedestrians and purses and sunglasses and cameras, an Arabic couple stopped me. Can you take our picture? The husband asked. The man and the woman and their two daughters posed in front of me. Make sure you get the bridge, the wife said. Through the lens of the camera, I could see Lori had gained on me and stood leaning against the rail of the entrance to the bridge. With a malevolent smile, she said, Cheese. Did you get it? The husband asked. The screen told me that Lori was not in the picture. Yes, I said. Beautiful family. Cars came up to the point where the trail ends and the freeway begins. They drove from the Marin County side to the city, and they left the city and went to the county side. If I stepped in front of their path, would they give me the mercy that I was looking for? Would I die on impact or would I suffer? Would it be quick or would it only serve to prolong my sacrifice? Missouri has the biggest population of whitetails in the United States, and the bulk of them reside just outside of Gardenstown. The coroner's report said it was the blood of a deer on the front bumper found just north of the Highway 3 intersection by the triangle on the road while the rest of the car was burnt and charred in the holler on the other side of the road. When the emergency services arrived, Lori was inside the flames, but McKenna had made his way out. Lori skipped down towards me, past the cars and onto the pedestrian walkway of the bridge. I knew you'd come, she said. Lori became my mood meter. She came when I was weak. She came when I was strong. She came when I was surrounded by the ones that I love, and she came when I was absolutely and utterly alone. It's at life's edges that we are the most fragile. It was when I was in the most need of mercy that I became the sacrifice. At only four feet tall, a child could climb over the rails of the bridge without a second thought. Joseph Strauss was a notoriously small man, and it's been said that he may have simply wanted to be able to see over the bridge's side. But his choice 
proved to be the path of least resistance for me. Lori balanced on the rail, crossing one foot over the other. It's not that far down, she said. The Golden Gate Bridge is one and three quarter miles long. It is suspended by two towers that are 746 feet tall, and from where I stood, it was 220 feet above water. Could I survive such a fall? I'd do it, Lori said, if I could. Walking towards the first tower, I took slow and deliberate steps, as if they were the last ones that I'd ever take. People came towards me and from behind. A middle-aged lady leaned up against the rail, and Lori hopped over her outstretched hands. She wore no ring on her finger, but her waistline was full with pregnancy. She glanced all around herself, forward and behind and to the left and to the right. The wind from off the bay picked up with every blink of her frantic eyes. Clouds came in from the Marin County side of the bridge, and in desperation, they settled on her. Passing her, the clouds moved past Lori and came upon me. Years earlier, when Lori and I had attended Ian's and Kathleen's second baby shower for Winston, she revealed a thought in my ear. You know, she said, when we thought that I was pregnant and I turned out not to be, I wish I had been. Her eyes had been warm and her voice was sweet. You would have been a good dad. Past the pregnant lady I saw my first warning. A blue sign posted above my head read, Emergency Phone and Crisis Counseling and an old, corded phone hung beneath it. A light, soft sprinkle of rain began to fall, and Lori hugged her arms to herself and said, It's getting cold, Johnny. I reached for the phone, but she pulled me forward. We need to hurry. The Golden Gate Bridge is 90 feet wide, carrying six lanes of traffic, three lanes into the city and three out of it. Over two billion cars have crossed since its opening. Two people per car, in addition to all the people on foot and bikes, and another billion could easily be added. According to the numbers, there was nothing special about me being there that day. But to Lori and I, it was the most important destination of my life. At the first tower, the sky grew dark, as it doesn't often do in California, and it looked like a picture only seen in the Midwest. I had only seen a sky such as that in Gardenstown when the moisture rises up from the river and breeds tornadoes of gloom and strife and the pain that's felt when one knows the true depths of loneliness. Lori took my hand, and I began to see red. The same red I saw the first time that I cut my wrist open. The same red I saw in anger when I waited outside Makina's hospital room before he died. The same red I saw in the truck stop shower. The bridge was red. Its towers and the suspension cables and the rails Around the octagon-shaped walkway, I saw her standing on the rail a second time. She wore a red frock of a dress that blew in the wind. Come on up, Johnny, she said. A gust blew in behind her and threatened to take her off her feet, but she bent down in time to grab the rail. I heard a voice behind me, and Lori's face changed. Her look of governance was replaced by one of fear. Excuse me, sir, the voice said. Lori jumped down. Let's go, Johnny, she said, and she ran off in front of me. My paces started slow, but grew quicker to keep up with her, and the voice trailed off behind me. What are your plans? The voice asked. The distance between the two towers is about one mile, and at the halfway point I caught up with her. It's now or never, she said. Physically and mentally and emotionally, I was tired.
I was tired from the long walk to the bridge. I was tired from the haunting of Lori's existence. I was worn from the torment of sacrifice that I had given myself. Take my hand, Lori said. I interlocked my fingers and hers and took to the rail. We faced the jail, down below, across the water. We faced the city of San Francisco across the bay. We faced the promise of what I thought was mercy. My senses heightened and I could smell the salt from off the water. I could hear my heart pulse as I held Lori's hand. I could taste blood in my mouth from biting my tongue as my body began to defeat itself. A ray of sun bolted through the storm clouds and shone on Lori, backlighting her body and face and her red eyes. And I heard a ringing that started faint but grew louder with each tone. Lori turned us around and my back faced the water. Stick your arms out, she said. Close your eyes and fall. As I committed and surrendered to the sacrifice, a man ran towards me. What's your plans for tomorrow? A friendly-faced California highway patrolman asked. My phone rang in the pockets of my jeans, and the wind blew in hard behind Lori on the rail, and her hair blew in over her shoulders, and her dress blew up around her waist. Don't answer it, she said. Don't answer him. I took my phone out of my pocket. It was Ian. The patrolman stood directly in front of me. Ian, I said, answering my phone. It's Jeffrey, he said. He's jumped off the Gardenstown Bridge. The patrolman spoke louder this time. What are your plans for tomorrow? Is he okay, I asked. He's in the hospital, Ian said. Where are you? The patrolman held out his hand to help me down from the rail. I looked at the water. It promised sacrifice. I looked down at him and his hand, and it gave me another chance at mercy. On the rail, Lori and her promise was gone. I'm in San Francisco, I said. A wind came off the west side of the bridge at my face, and I lost my footing. My right hand slipped, and then my left. But instead of falling away from the gust, I fell into it, towards the patrolman. He caught me in his arms as my phone was up to my ear. You need to come home, Ian said. I got you, the patrolman said as he helped me down from the rail. I have to tell you one last thing. What? I asked. Grandpa John's? Dead. I looked at the patrolman in the eyes before I shut my own and I said, My plans for tomorrow are to go home. Thanks for listening to another chapter of Mercy Not Sacrifice by me, Dan Parks. If you're enjoying this project, let me ask you one big favor. Please rate or review the podcast on iTunes. Stick around next time for another chapter.